Today, we begin a new summer message series called Arrow Prayers, Desperate Prayers for Desperate Times. And together, we're living through one of the most difficult moments in our lifetimes, the one-two punch of a virulent virus threatening our lives and livelihoods, and civil unrest rising from issues of racial inequality long deferred are taking their toll. And the question for people of faith is whether we'll give in to the tension and trauma of viral and racial pandemics or learn how to pray. And in the words of Jewish storyteller Isaac Beshevis Singer, he said, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time. And in desperate times, people of faith pray desperate prayers, and there are many of these arrow prayers in Scripture. Arrow prayers are short, simple prayers, a few words, a sentence, or less, that focus faith and sharpen our awareness of God. Arrow prayers give us direction and empower us to walk with God and help us fulfill the command in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. The Greek word translated without ceasing has the idea of continually, always. This term was used for a tickle in one's throat that made it feel like you're always just about to cough. Well, we should always be just about to pray. And it's better to pray at all times than to make it a rule to pray at certain times. We may reach into our quiver for an arrow prayer in times of faith or fear, in the midst of struggle, or just overwhelmed by God's goodness. In our summer message series, Arrow Prayers, we'll explore intense prayers by heroes of faith from the New Testament and the Old, women and men, leaders and followers, believers and unbelievers. Esther Chang presents the first message in our series, a look at Peter's failed attempt to walk on water. And Peter's arrow prayer, Lord, save me, connected him with Jesus, who reached out his hand and lifted him up. Well, I think we could all use a lift right about now. And this season has pushed us out of our comfort zones. But that can be a good thing because growth doesn't happen there. It's between rocks and hard places and in the storms of life that our lives are formed in Christ's life. Journey with us this summer and add some arrow prayers to your quiver of faith. Hello, and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. We're starting a new sermon series this summer on arrow prayers. An arrow prayer is a quick prayer shot up to heaven in a single breath. It's typically brief, usually not longer than one sentence, and it's prayed in the moment very often a moment of desperation, crisis, or great need. We're certainly living in a time like that right now, so we're going to spend this summer looking at different arrow prayers that are made throughout the Bible and learning how to incorporate this type of praying into our arsenal of spiritual skills. We're going to start this week by examining the shortest prayer in the Bible, only three words long. Curios sozo ego, Lord, save me. Let's read the entirety of today's passage, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's just imagine what's going on in this story for a moment. Now, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and at his direction, the disciples get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee while Jesus stays on the mountain to pray. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 13 miles wide, about the size of Washington, D.C. It is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It lies 680 feet below sea level and is surrounded by hills rising 2,000 feet high. The cool, dry air of the hills, in contrast with the warm, moist air over the much lower lake, results in pressure and temperature differentials that can cause strong winds to descend suddenly upon the lake, creating waves that have been recorded as high as 10 feet. The Sea of Galilee is also relatively shallow, just 200 feet at its greatest depth, and a shallow lake tends to be whipped up by the wind more rapidly than deep waters. Now, in our story, evening comes, it gets dark, and just such a wind descends upon the disciples on the lake, a wind so strong they can't make good headway. Then, at the fourth watch, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus walks on the lake, coming near them. We know from John 6.19 that by now the boat was three or four miles out from the shore. We also know from Mark 6.48 that Jesus actually means to pass by them, but the disciples see him and are afraid. Jesus identifies himself, and Peter, in his characteristically enthusiastic but somewhat rash manner, says, Jesus, if it's really you, command me to come on the water. Jesus says one word, come. In response, Peter does three things. First, he steps out of the boat. Can you imagine taking that first step in that kind of wind with those kind of waves? This was a total step of faith. Secondly, Peter walks on water. His faith leads to a miraculous experience. Thirdly, he comes towards Jesus. He fixates himself on Jesus and makes progress in that direction. But then something changes. Peter starts to look at the wind. And again, this is not just any ordinary wind. In the Greek, there are two words here, which mean a mighty wind or a strong, violent wind. And Peter becomes afraid. He starts to doubt. It's dark, it's cold, and he feels himself sinking into the enormous waves. I would just pause here and say that it can feel like this pandemic has put us out into open waters. The routines and events we relied on and hoped in, the people we saw regularly in person are gone. The boat is gone. It feels like we're alone and moored in the never-ending monotony, facing waves the likes of which we've never faced before, grappling with the challenges and brokenness this time has revealed in ourselves and in our society. But in this moment, 
Peter cries a simple prayer, Lord, save me. What I'd like to do is to briefly look at each of the three words of this prayer and ask ourselves what we learn from them about arrow prayers. Then we'll end with a more extended time of application. The first word Peter says is, Lord. Now, this may sound obvious, but the first thing that arrow prayer does is immediately call the spiritual to mind. In the very middle of a desperate experience, Peter's prayer recalls Jesus to his mind. Much of the time when we pray, we think we ought to set aside our lives for it. And as we'll discuss, that's important too. But arrow prayers are meant to be made in the midst of life. They don't interrupt the moment, but are made in the moment. And they can, in that moment, quickly and actively direct our thoughts to God. The reality is the spiritual realm is real. The heavenly realm is not something that only exists after we die. It is, as Stott puts it, the unseen world of spiritual reality that is around us all the time. In his book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks writes about an academic who early in his career went to India to study moral sentiments. He found that people there experienced everyday reality in not just the normal dimensions, but also in a spiritual dimension. He came to think of this axis as a vertical axis. Everything people in India ate, everything they said, everything they thought, everything they did, could move them up or down on this spiritual axis. When he returned to the United States, he missed being around people who felt the vertical spiritual dimension in everyday life. He began to think of the U.S. as a flatland, a thinner realm. It's easy to go through our days in a kind of flatland, but what arrow prayers do is open our eyes to the vertical dimension that is the spiritual reality which permeates every moment of our day. God is always with us. It's just that we're sometimes more aware of him than others. And these brief prayers have the power to open us to God and his actions right in that moment. But Peter doesn't just call out to any God. He says, Lord. Arrow prayers are not some magical formula or self-soothing technique. They are spoken to a personal Lord. An arrow cannot be used without purpose. You don't notch an arrow to your bow unless you know what you're pointing at who you're speaking to. Arrow prayers are not meant to be a standalone substitute for more prolonged, regular times of prayer, but they are made to supplement that, to rise out of the context of our experience of Jesus as Lord. In fact, before Peter stepped out of the boat, Jesus revealed himself as Lord in a really interesting way. We know from Mark 6 that he walked on the water with the intention of passing them by. Then, when asked who he was, he said, Don't be afraid, for I am. The words in Greek are ego ami, I am. This was a Moses moment. Do you remember when Moses asked who God was in the burning bush? God said, I am. And these are the same words Jesus uses of himself here. Do you remember when Moses asked to see God's face and God said, no, but stand here and I will let my glory pass by? That's in Exodus 33. 
Here, Jesus intends to pass them by. And of course, we all remember the God of Moses wielding the wind to part the waters of the Red Sea, just like Jesus demonstrates his mastery over wind and water as he walks on the Sea of Galilee and later calms its winds. Jesus is showing himself to be the same God who led his people out of Egypt through the waters. As Job 9.8 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God led Israel out through the sea. Jesus is saying, I am that God. I am. I am the one who saves. Peter sees that, and that is why he steps out of the boat. That is who he is calling to as Lord. So we see that arrow prayers have the power to immediately connect us with God in the moment and that they must flow out of our acknowledgement of and relationship with Jesus as Lord. Now, let's take a look at the second word in Peter's prayer, save. Does this petition strike you as premeditated, analyzed, memorized? polished or lengthy? (laughs) No, this ask is a spontaneous and urgent cry of the soul. That's what arrow prayers are at their core. They rise less from our heads than our hearts. They aren't planned or eloquent, but they are marked by a sincere earnestness. They are honest, and here at least, desperate. It takes something to get us to the point of desperation, of realizing how urgently and desperately we need to be saved. Perhaps part of that is because we live in a culture that tells us that we don't need to be saved. We just need to find ourselves, to go on a journey like Elsa, deep into a glacier, to discover that all the answers she ever looked for are found in none other than herself. David Brooks, in the same book, talks about how our culture of hyper-individualism is a moral ecology built on a few fundamental assumptions, one of which is the God within, where the goal of life is to achieve self-fulfillment, where the ultimate source of authority is found inside. We think the answer lies in total freedom of self-expression and complete autonomy. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says you can't figure it out yourself based on no criteria outside of yourself. Salvation of self, the freedom of being who we're truly meant to be, the discovery of our real worth and identity can only come outside of self. We cannot save ourselves. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just stop the wind when Peter started sinking? He had the power to do so at any time. Peter was a fisherman. He spent his life on the water. He probably could have swam or found his way back to the boat once the wind calmed down. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he uses the desperation of the moment to reveal a great spiritual truth that we are really all where Peter is, in need of rescue, urgent rescue. If we realized our true spiritual condition, we would pray more like this. We would cry out for that rescue. We need Jesus to save us from the consequence and power of our sin. We need him to find the only kind of hope and satisfaction that endures. We need him to center us in a drifting world. Hebrews 6.19 describes the hope we have in Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. There is a revelation of God we can only have in desperation. 
there is a kind of growth that only happens when we feel the familiar torn out from under us. These times ask us, what are you looking to for rescue? What is your hope in, really? In that moment of gut-wrenching fear and doubt, when you can't formulate an analytical thought, when the boat is gone, what do you grab for? What or who is your savior? Is it yourself, someone else, your circumstances, a future outcome or event? Or is it Jesus? Do we cry like Peter for Jesus alone to save us? So we see that arrow prayers are spontaneous, driven by the sincerity or urgency of the moment. We see that it's okay and even revelatory and powerful to cry out to God in that way. The third and last word of Peter's prayer is me. This is a personal prayer. Peter is expressing a personal need, a personal desire. His plea is for himself because he sees his own condition. It actually takes some awareness to see our own condition. It takes intentionality to be able to name our desires before God. One reason for this is that our culture encourages us to be like ducks on water, to appear to be gliding along effortlessly, to seem like we've got it all together, when in reality, under the surface, we're paddling furiously. It's hard at times to admit that we need help or rest, even to ourselves. Another reason is that we sometimes get so functional, so focused on the routines and needs and demands around us, that we don't even realize we're sinking. One example of this right now is parenting burnout, something many of us are facing while parenting without relief for unprecedented lengths of time. I found that burnout by definition is something I'm not aware of until I'm already in it. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, why am I so grouchy all the time? Why does everything look so negative? Oh, maybe it's because I'm getting burned out and need to ask for some time for myself. In fact, this has cycled so often that I made a list of signs of burnout to look for. Five things. First, exhaustion. Chronic, physical, and or mental fatigue, feeling tired all the time. Second, lack of motivation. Losing interest, feeling disconnected, feeling like I don't care anymore. Third, cynicism and dread. Seeing or assuming the worst, feeling like every day is a bad day. Fourth, resentment and irritability. Displacing frustration, angry outbursts, feeling isolated. Thinking it's always Dave's fault, nobody understands. Lastly, helplessness, feeling suffocated or trapped. I also have a list of five things that help me prevent burnout. First, permission and pacing. This is giving myself permission to take time for myself, realizing that's going to make it better for everyone. And it's making those breaks regular, not just occasional or as catch up when I'm already burned out. Second, community, being in regular connection with other people. Third, hobby, which I think of as recovering the me that's not a mom, doing something that is life-giving and unrelated to parenting. Fourth, physical care, paying attention to my own sleep, diet, and exercise, caring for my body. Fifth, spiritual space, having a regular place and time that is just for me and God. That's my list. What does yours look like? The point is, we have to start with ourselves and know our own condition. Do you know what you need? What you long for? 
Do you regularly name your desires in God's presence? Very often we find that the desire under our desires, the longing under all our other longings, is a longing for more of God. The rest we really seek is the one we find in Him. In her book, Sacred Rhythms, Ruth Haley Barton writes, Your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you have experienced so far is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you, or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as husband or wife, mother or father somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. Are you familiar with this place within yourself? Peter's prayer is deeply personal. He wants to be saved. He wants to live. He wants to overcome his doubts. And those are the words that rise out of him and must rise out of us. Lord, save me. Give me the life I need and desire in you. So we see that arrow prayers open our eyes in the moment to the vertical dimension, the spiritual realm. They exist in the context of our relationship with Jesus. They rise up as spontaneous, heartfelt cries of the soul, and they often express personal needs and desires with insight and vulnerability. Now that we've got some idea of what arrow prayers are, let's discuss three points of application. First, examples of arrow prayers and how to use them. Then two things that this week's arrow prayer teaches us about how to pray. Charles Spurgeon once said, I would urge you to cultivate the habit of praying briefly all the day. The first application is to start using arrow prayers if you aren't already. You know, prayers don't have to be long or polished to be effective. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. As we see from today's passage, sometimes the best prayers are the short ones, and the ready availability of short prayers can allow us to more easily pray without ceasing, as Paul urges in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's go through some examples of arrow prayers you can use. My personal favorite is, help, or variations on that, God help me know what to say. God help me out of this. Another one I repeat as I begin times of silence and solitude with God is, Lord, here I am. Lord, here I am. Arrow prayers can be short doorway prayers, asking God for help as we enter a new endeavor, encounter, or Zoom call. They can be short prayers of intercession or blessing for others. Have you found that often we say, I'll pray for you, when we don't? Well, What I do is shoot up an arrow prayer for that person right at that moment so I'll have kept my word in case I forget to pray for them more later on. You can pray in the moment for direction. Help me know what to say. Show me what to do. You can pray during temptation. Lord, deliver me. God, I choose you and not this temptation. Show me something else to do instead. You can pray in gratitude. God, thank you. That's so beautiful, God. I receive that from you, God. Church tradition also gives us great examples. St. Philip Neri said, 
It is an old custom of the servants of God to have some little prayer ready and to be frequently darting them up to heaven during the day, lifting their minds to God out of the mire of this world. St. Francis of Assisi's favorite short prayer was, My God and my all. Before St. Catherine of Siena died, she prayed for 40 straight days, I have sinned, have mercy on me. During sickness, St. Teresa of Avila prayed, We accept good from the Lord, should we not accept evil? St. Gregory Palamas would repeat, Lord, enlighten my darkness. Let's end with two things that this week's arrow prayer teaches us about prayer. First, it teaches that it's never too late to pray. You know what I think is the most memorable thing about Peter's prayer? It was made in the act of sinking. Should Peter have prayed earlier? Should he not have lost focus on Jesus? Should he not have fallen victim to fear and doubt? Maybe, but still, he prays. At the very worst, the very lowest moment of the entire story, Peter cries out to God. It's okay to pray in desperation. It's okay to cry out to God in the lowest moments. It's not too late. Cry out to God for your unbelieving friend, even when it seems like nothing will ever change. Cry out to God for your children, even if their ungodliness continues to break your heart. Cry out to God even when you feel yourself sinking into the temptation, even when you feel despair and fear overwhelm you, even if you still doubt. It's so much easier just to complain to ourselves or berate ourselves or vent to our friends or sink down into hopelessness or bitterness or seek refuge in some addiction, but cry out to God instead, right at the very point of desperation. And arrow prayers like Peter's are a good place to start. A few brief, sincere words from the heart. It doesn't have to be fancy. Don't give up, for as Ephesians reminds us, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. Secondly, Peter's prayer teaches us to pray even when our faith is weak. If you think about it, this story teaches us that the object of our faith is more important than the strength of our faith. What does Jesus say is Peter's problem here? He says, O you of little faith. Now, Peter knew Jesus controlled the wind and the waves. Besides the fact that Jesus was at that moment still standing on water, just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 8, the disciples were in a boat with Jesus when he calmed a storm on the very same Sea of Galilee. A version of this has happened before. Peter had to intellectually know that he had no reason to fear, yet in that moment, his faith was weak. Isn't that the struggle for all of us? We might know in our heads that God is sovereign over this pandemic, that he will one day right centuries of racial injustice, that he is able to show us the right next step, that our hope in our future is no less real despite the uncertainty of these times. But when we're living it out in the day-to-day, it's easy to doubt. It's easy to feel functionally adrift. But Peter was saved by one thing. Even though he was filled with fear and doubt, he had enough faith left in that moment to cry out to Jesus. The object of our faith is more important than the strength of our faith. Let's say you're drowning in an ocean and someone on a boat throws you a lifeline. Let's say they throw you some sewing thread. It doesn't matter how tightly you grab that sewing thread. It's not going to hold you against the waves. It's not strong enough to pull you to the boat. 
But let's say that someone throws you a thick piece of rope. Even if you can only manage a weak grip on that rope, you're more likely to be saved because of how strong that rope is. A weak faith in a strong object is better than a strong faith in a weak object. Look at what happens right after Peter says, Lord, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus is the one who came over. Jesus is the one who reached out. The hand that Jesus extends is a hand that went out to doubt, not to perfect faith. And Jesus is the one who took hold of Peter, pulled him up out of the water, brought him back to the boat, stilled the wind, and brought him to his destination. This is the object of our faith. A Lord who came over into our stormy, broken world, who invites us to come to him, who reaches out to rescue us, who walks with us on the waters, who rides with us in the boats, who one day will bring us home. He never leaves us. He always hears us. Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Do you believe that? Who or what is the object of your faith? Do you hear Jesus saying to you, come? Do you know that he is next to you, very near you, even in moments of deep desperation, darkness, struggle, or doubt? Call out to him. Peter's prayer is a prayer for each of us every day. Lord, save me.